Almost makes you want to get up and dance, doesn't it? Fantastic. We're going to kick off a new series here in just a moment, but before we do, I, uh, uh, I want to remind you, that last Sunday I stood up before you and with great confidence in my heart, I was sure that my Washington Huskies were going to win the national championship. And then they lost, and then everything went to pot. <laughs> Ever have a week like that? Now here's the thing, even if they would have won the national championship, that wouldn't have been the most exciting thing in the world to me last, last week. Because last week, Lisa and I became grandparents for the three, third time. That's right. <laughs> Little uh, Ruby is taking care of her mom and dad down in Phoenix, and so we're going to uh, run down there and uh, see her for a couple days here this week and get acquainted, welcome her to the family. So we're very, very excited about that. Number three, two are in, uh, two are in Alaska and one is in Phoenix. I wonder where you'd like to go this time of the year to visit your grandchildren for a couple days. Well, uh, looking forward to that. Great to have you here today, friends. Um, we're going to be talking here about uh, seven deadly sins here for the next few weeks. You know, and, and I, I want to just kind of uh, set the stage here just a little bit. Um, last week we talked about hope, and we all love to talk about hope. We'd like to talk about hope all the time. We need more hope in our life, but we also need to get rid of some things in our life. Can I hear a big amen? And what we're going to talk about for the next few uh, weeks are really, really important to God. Otherwise, he wouldn't have put them in the Bible. And I want us to take this opportunity to just really pray and think and ponder and ask the Lord what needs to be eradicated from our life. In other words, look at it this way. What do we need to leave in 2023? What do we need to leave there? What cycle of sin do we need to stop in 2024? Remember the book of Judges? I mean, the children of Israel, the people of God, were in this cycle over and over again. They went from obedience to disobedience to, to judgment to repentance to uh, obedience and devotion, and then boom, disobedience and judgment, and then they repented, and then they started over again. It was over and over and over again. We see it in the book of Judges. We see it in the Bible over and over again, and we see it in our lives from time to time. What cycle needs to stop in 2024? I know for sure within the sound of my voice this week, online, in person, people who catch the message during the week, that there are people living in disobedience. And we all struggle from time to time, but, but the question is not, how do I be perfect? Because none of us are perfect. The question is, am I pursuing obedience? Am I walking with Christ and pursuing obedience? And I want us to think about that here uh, today. The beautiful news is deliverance and forgiveness is available to all of us. Can I hear a big amen? If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to purify us from all unrighteousness, 1 John 1.9. What a beautiful, beautiful verse. So what does God want to address in our life? We are all called to live, love, and lead like Jesus. It's more than a slogan on the wall. It's the passion of our heart. We want to live, love, lead like Jesus. But sin drags us away. Sin entices us from the will of God. It sinks us. It destroys us. Like bad eating and not exercising is bad for our physical health. Like overspending and not saving is bad for our financial health. Like unforgiveness and distrust is bad for our relational health. 
So sin and disobedience is destructive to our spiritual health. So let's think about sin for a few moments. Do we blush at sin? Do we kind of wink at it? Do we minimize it, cover it up, ignore it, excuse it? Do we snuggle up to sin, cozy up to carnality? Do we dance with disobedience? Or do we see spiritual disease for what it is? That very thing that will lead to spiritual death. Do we see sin as destructive of people and their relationships or not? What do we know about sin? The Bible says that sin is missing the mark. You know, we're aiming at the bullseye right here. This is God's will. But instead of shooting toward God's bullseye, boom, we're shooting over here somehow. We're, we're missing the mark. For all have sinned. All have missed the mark and fall short of the glory of God. Romans 3.23. What, what else do we know? The Bible says that sin can be pleasurable for a season. But in the end, it brings judgment. Proverbs 14.12 says, A way that seems right unto a man, but the end thereof leads to death. Jesus said sin enslaves. In John 8, 34, he says everyone who sin is a slave to sin. It's also destructive. It damages, it erodes, it defiles, it depletes, it destroys. Romans 6, 23 says the wages of sin is death. Sin must be addressed. This is what Jesus said in John 5, 14. Stop sinning or something worse will happen to you. Stop it now. Stop or it's going to get worse. It's not going to get better. That's a powerful verse. And then Jesus addressed our sin by making a way for us to find freedom and forgiveness. In 2 Corinthians 5.21, Paul says, God made him who had no sin to become sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. In Christ, he made a way. Paul also said sin must stop. It must stop now. What shall we do then? Go on sinning so grace can abound? God forbid. By no means. We must put sin to death. Now, when you talk about the seven deadly sins, the first thing you see if you Google it, look it up, or if you studied it, think about, is is the seven deadly sins from history. And that's a little bit different than what we're going to look at in just a minute. But Sin is sin is sin is sin, and we're going to talk about it kind of in its totality. But I find this very interesting. I enjoy church history, and, and, uh, you know, oftentimes when you think of the seven deadly sins, you think of more the Catholic version of the the vices and the virtues. And uh, you see that the the seven uh, vices are things like pride and greed and wrath and envy and lust and gluttony and sloth. Whereas the seven virtues you see on the screen, prudence, justice, temperance, fortitude, faith, hope, charity, you know, those have been kind of the the cardinal uh, truths that church history has celebrated uh, since really the first century. Uh, Tertullian, who was a uh, uh, apologist and author of Christianity in uh, uh, the second century AD, came up with these lists to start with. And Over the years, the Romans would often talk about vices and virtues, and it was Pope Gregory in A.D. 590 that really kind of took this list and tweaked it and kind of made it mainstream. Thomas Aquinas in uh, the 1200s, a philosopher and a Dominican friar and theologian, uh, really kind of formulated 
these lists in his theological work, and the church has really followed them all the way to the present day. I want you just to think about each of these vices for a moment. We won't get into the virtues, but, but just think of the vices. Lust is the unbridled desire, whether it be sex or for money or for power. Unbridled desire. It's the impurity of lust that transforms one into the slave of the devil, one theologian wrote. Gluttony, one of the seven deadly sins. The overindulgence or overconsumption of anything to the point of waste. Listen to this. The word in Latin means to gulp down or swallow. Isn't that something? One reason for its condemnation is that the gorging of the prosperous may leave the needy hungry. Thomas Aquinas lists five forms of gluttony. Each have a Latin word connected to it. I won't give you the Latin word, but I thought this was an interesting way to slice away at this topic. Eating too expensively, eating too daintily, eating too much, which is the one we usually think about, eating too soon, and eating too eagerly. Too much focus on food. Greed. An inordinate desire to acquire possess more than one needs especially with respect to material wealth. Aquinas states that, like pride, it can lead to evil. Edward Manning, a priest in the Church of England, says, Avarice plunges man deep into the mire of this world so that it makes him to be, it becomes his God. Sloth. Unlike the other six where... The other six are condemned for immorality. This is a sin of omitting responsibility. So there are sins of commission, things we do that we shouldn't, and things of omission, things we're supposed to do that we don't. That's what sloth is more about. Often referred to as laziness, it refers to a larger question of discipline and devotion. It refers to not doing the right things, caring for others, showing empathy, showing compassion, etc., It includes issues like tardiness and negligence and laziness. Sloth hinders the man in doing the righteous things he's supposed to be doing. Wrath, uncontrolled feelings of anger and rage and hatred. Angry people are slaves to themselves, one author wrote. How about envy? The insatiable desire like greed and lust. It is a sad or resentful covetous toward Uh, the traits or possessions of other people. Again, Thomas Aquinas said this about envy. There are three different types, or three different sides might be a better way to put it. When we lower someone else's reputation, when we take joy in the grief of somebody else, or we simply hate somebody else. And then pride, the one that we want to look at here today, is all about hubris and arrogance and narcissism. It's considered the worst of the sin de- deadly sins. It's considered the most demonic. Pride is the opposite of humility, the way that we're supposed to be. Pride has been named the mother of all sins and the devil's most essential trait. It was C.S. Lewis who said in his book, Mere Christianity, that pride, pride is the anti-God state. It's just the opposite of God. The position in which the ego and the self are directly opposed to God. And then he goes on to say this, and I thought this was very uh, telling. Unchastity, anger, greed, drunkenness, all of that are mere 
flea bites, little mosquito bites in comparison. It was through pride that the devil became the devil. Pride leads to every other vice. It is the complete anti-God state of mind. And pride severs our relationship with God. There's no question why it's listed over and over in all the sin lists in the Bible. While this list of seven deadly sins that you see on the screen here is very notorious, it's not exhaustive, and it certainly isn't conclusive. I put in your sermon notes that you'll find on the app uh, many different lists of sins in Scripture. I listed probably 15 or so there. Uh, Lists of sin. Many, many different sins are listed, as, as we all know. But what I want us to do in these next few weeks is look at the seven deadly sins from Proverbs chapter 6, verses 16, 17, 18, and 19. Here it says specifically that God hates these sins. These sins are detestable to God. And I want you to think for a few moments. Do you hate what God hates? Do you love what God loves? Do you compromise, wink at sin, show indifference? And do I? It's a very important question for us to ask and to answer. It says here there are six things the Lord hates, seven that are detestable to him. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked schemes, feet that are quick to rush into evil, a false witness who pours out lies, and a person who stirs up conflict in the community. The big seven. The big seven. The one we're going to look at today is pride, haughty eyes. A great example in the Bible of this, or a terrible example of of this in the Bible, of course, Satan, Lucifer, was kicked out of heaven because of his pride. But we're going to look also in the book of Daniel at King Nebuchadnezzar and King Belshazzar because they display extraordinary pride and arrogance. What is the opposite of pride? In the New Testament, we see the description of Jesus in Philippians chapter 2. We want to close the message by focusing on that positive side. Is there any doubt why Jesus, in his teaching on the Sermon on the Mount, giving the eight most quintessential messages of his entire kingdom, the Beatitudes, started by talking against pride. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those that know they have nothing to bring to the table. There is absolutely nothing, nothing in and of themselves they know they have to offer. It's only God. It's all about God. Blessed are the poor in spirit who recognize they're nothing without God. And is there any question that the first part of the Ten Commandments, the first several Ten Commandments are about pride? You are to have no other God before you. Worship me and worship me alone. There's no room for worshiping anybody else. Pride is not just the number one sin in this list, but it's the number one sin in the entire Bible. It's revering self instead of revering God. Let's turn to Daniel chapter 4, verse 30, and look at an example of pride in the life of Nebuchadnezzar. It says that Nebuchadnezzar had built a great kingdom, and on one particular day, he goes out on his patio and he says, is this not the great Babylon that I have built with my hands? Is this not my royal residence 
that I put together with my mighty power and for the glory of my majesty. It says in verse 31 that as he got done saying that, a voice came from heaven predicting what was going to happen to him. And then in verse 33, what was stated actually took place. He was driven away from the people. He began to eat grass like cattle. His body was drenched with dew of heaven until his hair grew like feathers of an eagle and his nails like the claws of a bird. You see, this is going to happen to you if you keep going with pride. No, not really. Um, But boy, you talk about a vivid judgment against Nebuchadnezzar. I mean, he turned into an animal, basically. And that's not all. We turn the pages to Daniel chapter 5, and the next king, Belshazzar, is having a wild party celebrating all of his wealth and riches and narcissism all over the place. It says that he's the the son of Nebuchadnezzar. In the Bible, that, that could mean a grandson. It could be a successor. We're not exactly sure, but, but, but whatever. He's following in the footsteps of the arrogance of Nebuchadnezzar. And there's handwriting on the wall. Have you ever heard the phrase, the handwriting on the wall? Well, there's literal handwriting on the wall. And they call in Daniel to interpret the handwriting. And he reminds Belshazzar of his father, his grandfather, Nebuchadnezzar. And he says in verse 22 of Daniel chapter 5, you have not humbled yourself. You are arrogant. You are full of hubris and narcissism. You have set yourself up against the Lord of heaven. Friends, there is only one place for one God, and it's either the God of the universe or you. It can't be both. I was deeply moved as uh, our worship team was leading us in the song, Worthy is your name, Jesus. You deserve the praise. Worthy is your name. There's only room for one God, and you, friend, are not it, and neither am I. Nebuchadnezzar didn't figure it out, neither did Belshazzar. And so Daniel reads, many, many tickle parson, verse 25 And then he interprets the words. God has numbered the days of your reign and brought it to an end. You have been weighed on the scales and found wanting. Your kingdom is now divided among the Medes and the Persians. And then notice this, verse 30. That very night, Belshazzar was slain. Darius the Mede takes over. Wow. You're talking about judgment? Chances are we won't experience the same judgment Nebuchadnezzar or Belshazzar experienced, thank God. But pride is destructive. Make no mistake about it. And if we entertain it, if we allow it to flourish in our life, it will destroy us too. And it will destroy what's most important to us. Why is pride so destructive? Because it specifically sets us up against God. In its simplest form, it's us over God. It's us on the throne of our heart, not God. It's me instead of God. It's idolatry. It breaks the first commandment. It breaks the first sin that God hates. It breaks the first beatitude. I could go on. And it's destructive. And it manifests itself in many different ways. 
The Bible says that God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Listen to a couple of these verses. Though the Lord is exalted, he looks kindly on the lowly. Proverbs 3, 34. He mocks proud mockers but shows favor to the humble. Matthew 23. For those who exalt themselves, they will be humbled. But those who humble themselves, they'll be exalted. James 4, 6. But he gives us more grace. That is why scripture says God opposes the proud but shows favor to the humble. 1 Peter 5, 6, humble yourselves therefore under God's mighty hand and he will lift you up in due time. And a couple of verses from the Proverbs. When pride comes, then comes disgrace, but with humility comes wisdom. The Lord detests all the proud of heart, but sure of this, they will not go unpunished. Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. Nebuchadnezzar. Belshazzar, pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. And a man's pride brings him low, but a man of lowly spirit gains honor. Why is pride such an abomination? Let me summarize by just giving these thoughts. It breaks the first commandment, you shall have no other gods before me. It shatters the first beatitude, blessed are the poor in spirit. It's the exact opposite of Jesus' life and ministry of humility. It makes self God, not God himself. It is because it is the worst. It's the first and the worst. It got Lucifer thrown out of heaven. It reveres me over God. But what is the antidote? What is the antidote to pride? It's humility. And Jesus not only shows us He teaches us. He describes it in all of his teaching. And the best place to look at it, I think, is Philippians chapter 2. And I want to uh, kind of bring things full circle by uh, closing with this thought. What are the five steps to humility? As we go through these, I encourage you just to, to ask yourself. I think most people would say, well, I don't have any problem with pride. I'm as humble as they come. Well, that's kind of an arrogant statement, isn't it? Pride raises its ugly head in many different ways. And we got to learn to spot it and then to root it out. And Jesus shows us how. Uh, In Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, it says, Make live, love, lead. Like Jesus, your life's aim. Living and loving and leading. Living, humility. Loving, humility. Leading with humility. It says here in the first couple of verses of uh, Philippians chapter 2 that we are to be like-minded having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind, living like Jesus, loving like Jesus, leading like Jesus. In other words, that needs to become more than just a slogan of our life or a vision statement of our church. It needs to be something that we really, really, really dig into and say, Lord, how can I today, and pray it every day, how can I live like you more today, love like you more, lead like you? Help me, Lord, do that. Secondly, make humility your daily ambition. It says here, do nothing out of selfish ambition. Rather, make humility your ambition. Don't make selfishness your ambition. How many have ever been selfish in your life? Let me see your hand. Um, Every single one of us. I mean, we, we bow down to the shrine of self. We worship self. It's all about self. It's the extraordinary person. It's the mature person that is moved to focusing on God and others. God, help us become more humble 
May we do nothing out of selfish ambition or vacancy, but in humility value others over ourselves. Not looking to our own interests, but to the interests of others. Make humility your ambition. God, me second, me third. God first, others second, me third. God, help me grow in humility. That's not easy. That takes God doing that work inside of us. Our human carnal nature is bent towards self-centeredness. We need God to bend us the other way. And that's the work of the Holy Spirit in our life that wants to make us more like Christ, where we demonstrate the fruit of the Spirit, Christ's likeness. Lord, come into my life, flourish in my life, change my attitudes and appetites, desires, wants, and will. Number three, make your relationships Christ-honoring. Look at verse five. In your relationships with one another, have the same mind as Christ. If we brought you up here on stage and shined a spotlight on all of your relationships, would they be Christ-honoring? Your marriage, your relationship with your kids, people at work, people in business, people at school, people in the neighborhood, whatever you have it. That's kind of humbling to think about. You know, most of us would not feel too eager to see that happen. You know, we all have a ways to go, a ways to grow, where we need to become more like Christ. Make your relationship Christ-honoring. Uh, number four, make serving God and others your default, your first recourse, your first step. Make serving God and others what you lean into naturally. God, change me so that that is true. Who being in the very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. But he made himself nothing, taking on the form of a servant and becoming obedient to death. Make serving God, servant leadership, serving others, the rule of your life. If you were to grade yourself on these first four, how, how would you stack up to God's ideal? It's a great thing to do regularly, to evaluate our life in light of Scripture and emulate Jesus more faithfully so we can elevate, lift the level of our living. The problem is when we don't evaluate and don't emulate, and don't elevate, but just say, hey, it's okay. doesn't really matter. God wants more in 2024 for every single one of us. He wants more humility, less hubris, more humility. And then finally, make the king the king of your life, the king of the universe, the king of glory, the king of all, the king of all of your life. Truly make him the king of your life. Notice it says, Therefore God exalted Jesus to the highest place and gave him a name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every tongue, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. As we start kind of running around the last part of the track, bringing this thing home, I want you just to ask yourself this question. Where does narcissism, hubris, arrogance, pride most often raise its ugly head in my life? Would you answer that right now in your heart of hearts? Is it in your marriage? Is it in your relationship with somebody that you, you know, have a hard time working with? Is it in your, your faith with God, your journey with the Lord? Is it in some other family-related relationship? Is it maybe have nothing to do with those kind of relationships, maybe more with some of the other deadly sins we talked about, lust and greed and those kinds of things. 
Pride builds walls. Humility builds bridges. Where is pride building a wall between you and someone else? Pride builds walls. Humility builds bridges. What relationships are struggling because of your pride? How is pride a a watershed sin? You know, it has ripple effects. It's like a keystone sin. You know, pride has resulting deadly sins that follow it. Hubris over humility will ruin relationships. It will hurt marriages. It will damage kids and families. It's manifest in many different ways. You know, me first, me first, me first is the common one. When it's all about me, we don't see God and we don't see other people. Pride and arrogance and narcissism and bowing down at the shrine of self keeps us from achieving God's ideal, the gold standard of Christian living, where we put God first and others second and ourselves third. Just think about those five from Philippians 2. Make, live, love, lead your life's aim. What happens if we don't do that? Make humility your daily ambition. What if we make hubris our daily ambition? Make your relationship Christ-honoring. What if we don't make them Christ-honoring? Make serving God and others your default. What if we don't? Make the king the king of your life. What if we make ourselves the king of our life? As we bow our hearts and bow our heads and just kind of ponder these thoughts for just a few moments, I want each and every one of us, just to think very, very deeply. Where does pride and narcissism and arrogance and hubris raise its ugly head in my life? You may be a Christian, you may have given your life to Christ, but we're still on a journey. And so there's some times that we take three steps forward and two back, and and sometimes there's a cycle of sin. And maybe pride is it, or maybe it's a part of it. In what areas of our life are we putting ourselves before God and others? Most importantly, in what part of our life are we putting ourselves above God? When we do that, we're putting ourselves in opposition to God. There is only one God, only one true God. We are to have no other gods before him. And when we worship self, that's idolatry and destructive of all that's valuable. Maybe you're struggling with a a secret sin. Maybe you're involved in a habitual cycle that's destructive. The good news, the good news, the good news is that Jesus Christ became sin for us so that in him we might become, become the righteousness of God. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to what? Forgive us of our sin and to cleanse us. None of us here are sinless or sin-free. 
We all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But for many, we've run to the throne of God and we've asked for forgiveness. We've asked for cleansing. And we daily ask for strength that we can continue to go and grow with him. Is your marriage struggling because of your pride? It's your family. Are you holding on to a secret sin and in so doing, setting yourself up against God? Turn it over to Jesus. Give it to Jesus. We're still in the month of January. It's still the month, the beginning of a brand, brand new year. What can we leave in 2023? What cycle do we need to stop this first month? 2024. With every head bowed and every eye closed, how many would raise a hand and just say, Pastor, I'll pray for me. There's some things we talked about here today that I want to get right with God. I want to get right with God. Would you just lift your hand and hold it high? Maybe it's a sin. Maybe it's an area of disobedience. Maybe it's winking at things God hates that you too now want to hate. God bless you. God bless you for your honesty. Thank you for your honesty. That's where it starts. We just humbly, honestly come before the Lord and say, Lord, you know already what's going on. I acknowledge what's going on. And I'm praying, I'm asking you for help. Change me, stir me, renew me, remake me. I want to be humble. I want to live lovely like Jesus. Don't let these sins that I'm entangled in, take me down. I want to overcome them through Jesus Christ, my Lord. How many are here today would just say, Pastor Rob, I want to commit or recommit my life to Jesus. I want to commit or recommit my life. I want to be a Christian. I want to follow him. Just lift your hand and hold it high for a moment. Just hold it high. Yeah, God bless you. God bless you. God bless you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I can't tell you how excited I am, how excited I am for you to make that step. Just simply say, Lord, I want to become a Christian. Would you, in your heart of hearts, those of you that just raised your hand, would you just pray this prayer? Lord, come into my life. Forgive me. I commit or recommit my life to you. I want to follow you. Help me, Lord. Help me live, love, lead like Jesus. Help me understand the Bible. Follow the Bible. Help me get involved, Lord, in becoming the person you want me to be. Thank you, Lord, for each of these friends that have just committed or recommitted their life to Christ. If you're online and you're making that same commitment, I want to also say God bless you to you. God loves you and has a great plan for your life. Lord, I pray your blessing upon each and every one that's in this place here today. May we go out, Lord, and live vibrant, godly lives for you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.